listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Last time we had started going through the book of Romans, and we are going to be reading through the whole book over time, and may take a break here or there um, to emphasize a certain thing, especially since in the middle of going through talking about Calvinism, and I had begun reading through the first eight chapters of Romans with the little Bible study group we have here, and you know to kind of just build and show the the, the really the arguments and the reasoning that Paul makes leading up to Romans nine, which really clarify and put everything in perspective. And so where we had read through Romans one down to verse seventeen, the thesis statement or kind of the topical statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter one verse sixteen and seventeen kind of sets the stage for what he begins to spend really the next seven chapters, seven and a half chapters, developing and justifying and explaining, really, uh, where he says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man or the just shall live by faith. And he is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And so what Paul does, that statement, the just shall live by faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. It's the, it begs the question in a lot of people's minds at the time, remember keeping context, when was this passage written? To whom was it written? What is the sense and how they would have heard this? There's this God of Israel who has this whole ceremonial sacrificial system, the law of Moses, all these external things, blood sacrifices, temples, altars. How is it that a man, a Gentile even, can be considered righteous in the sight of that God without any of those things, especially on the basis of faith, which as certain people understood it, they considered to be kind of almost the opposite Um of the of the law of Moses, where it's very external, and it's very sacrifice, blood, pour some blood out on this, and that makes you righteous. And that was, of course, a misunderstanding on their part of the law of Moses, and the Jews, and things such as that, which Paul does kind of touch on later. And so then what Paul does, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, he, he zooms back way out, and he starts to consider kind of just humanity as a whole. Now, some people have said, well, he's talking about, you know, their contemporaries, these non-Christians at this time, and he's commenting on, like, paganism in general. It's much more broad than that. He's talking about humanity as a whole, apart from God, okay? It's not just a thing about a snapshot in history from creation all the way back and how it all developed and everything like that, though you can make an application, certainly. It's just talking about man apart from God, and notice the first thing that is brought up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So whenever Paul begins to start justifying the righteousness of God, and making men to be able to be justified by faith, apart from works, in the sense of earning salvation, he has to first bring up the wrath of God. And isn't that interesting? 
And those of us who talk about the gospel, and we, we try to explain the gospel, what is the first thing that you have to do in describing the gospel? You have to talk about how they're lost. And this is exactly what Paul has to do. There is no righteousness of God revealed against any, you know, in the, revealed in faith to faith, and the sense of being justifying men apart from works, unless you first show that all men are condemned. And he says this in Galatians, he does this later on in the book, where he says, God hath condemned all men so that he may have mercy on all. And it's really the backdrop of the whole thing. The reason that men can't save themselves is because they're all condemned. And this is kind of the first point that he has to touch on. He has to explain the wrath of God. It's not just some benign thing going on. God is not arbitrary in the sense of just, well, I'm just going to—this isn't Calvinism. God's not arbitrary. No matter what a Calvinist wants to say, their view of God is arbitrary. And even, uh, I think Jonathan Edwards actually uses the word arbitrary. And, you know, you can appeal to mystery all you want to, um, but that just means you don't have an answer. It's like, yes, the secret things belong unto God, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, is what the Scriptures say. God has revealed salvation. He has revealed the plan of salvation. He has literally explained it all to us, to a certain extent. And so when Calvinists appeal to mystery to justify their view that God is arbitrary and God's going to make this one bad, He's going to you know, ordain that your nature dictates that you do this, and then you can say proximate remote calls all you want to. We talked about that in election, I think, and so forth. But he is explaining the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this is the thing, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what what is it that men are guilty of? It's not that they do not have access to the truth, in at least a general sense. It is because they suppress the truth. The King James hold, or in the sense of hold down. What is man's chief error? They reject the truth. God is omnibenevolent. He is good to all. Right? He causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. And when you're in an agrarian culture, rain is a good thing. And he goes on verse 19, because that which is known about God it is evident within them. It's manifest, for God hath made it manifest to them or evident to them. There is a certain level of general level of truth and acknowledging of God that is able to be known by all mankind. Men are guilty of refusing that knowledge. They do not want that knowledge of God, so they refuse it. That is the chief error of man. And he kind of... This is what he's going to spend a few verses talking about. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, King James Godhead, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so this is where really the chief argument against atheism is that you have no excuse. You have no excuse to look at the order of creation and to say that it comes from chaos. I mean, where did the chaos even come from? Come from nothing? Nothing became chaos and chaos then became order? I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. And the only way that people can get to that way of thinking, the only way, the only thing that makes sense in any rational way is that you refuse 
to acknowledge truth. Now, again, we're talking in general. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. you cannot reason your way to a saving knowledge of Christ and of the gospel. You absolutely can reason your way to a knowledge that there is a God, and He is the one in control. Absolutely. Now, the only way that somebody cannot get that, when they turn the other way, is they refuse. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that is the springboard for every single thing that follows in what Paul is about to describe. So notice creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes. So the invisible God, his eternal power and Godhead, his eternal power and divine nature can be clearly seen. There is a general revelation of God and some of his, the invisible God can be known in a general sense by the way in which he has created the universe. And so every man is without excuse, even on a basic level. Okay, uh, verse 21, for even though they knew God, and we're talking about mankind generally, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. It says neither were they thankful. It's almost like they refused the creator and refused to consider themselves created things as though they're subservient to him. They did not want to give him the place that he rightfully deserves. And really, this is the chief thing of all sin in general. We seek our own ends, our own means for our own purposes, which is to not give God the proper place. We were made for his purposes, for his ends, according to his means. And really, at the root of all sin, that's the thing. That's the sin principle, the sinful nature in us. We are selfish. We want self to be exalted. And that's at the root of all sin, really. And it comes from not giving God his proper place in our lives. But notice what he goes on to say. So it's like, even though they knew God in that general sense, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile or vain in their imaginations, their speculations. It's talking, the word there, dialogosmos, uh, um, is referring to your thinking, your reasonings, right? And so in the Old and the New Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it almost always has this sense of a perverse, self-willed reasoning um, and speculations. It's like you just refuse, and so your your brain gets warped to thinking in this perverse way. And that's what we're talking about. In their speculations, their thinking, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, I'm going to camp here and rant for a second. According to Calvinism, and again, you have to use Calvinism in a broad sense because no matter what you say about Calvinism, there's always some group within Calvinism or Reformed theology that says, well, that's not what I believe. And that's because they're all arguing amongst themselves and trying to justify the key tenets of it, of their view, arbitrary view of sovereignty, their arbitrary view of election, their arbitrary view of predestination, and all sorts of things. Their arbitrary view of irresistible grace of God and things such as that. And they're all constantly trying to explain it away as long as they don't have to question Calvinism, really, is what it is. And so, yeah, within Calvinism, and those who call themselves Calvinists, there's going to be people who disagree with certain things. But there are absolutely people who absolutely do believe exactly this way. And they're the consistent ones, I will say. There are, they say that you are born so fallen, so given over to sin. They call it total depravity. And what they really mean is not total depravity, they mean total inability. That is, you have no ability to respond positively to the grace of God unless he himself makes you. And I do use the word 
makes you. He himself does it. Election. He chooses you arbitrarily or according to as they would say it through some mysterious reasonings of his own mind, but though it doesn't allow any merit within you to say that you earned anything, and to certain aspects of that, absolutely. But their whole point is that unless God drew you, you would never respond positively to God. Now, to a certain extent, that's true. God is the first mover in all things. We'll talk about that more uh, later on. But here's the thing. If man is so corrupt right? If man is so corrupt, why does God have to harden him? It begs the question. This is where there's a key thing that Calvinists don't understand. It's like they put the cart before the horse. If man, um, they they kind of arbitrarily set up reprobation as opposed to um, really salvation, if you uh, just to word it that way. They say everybody is electing Christ before the foundation of the world, or reprobate in, in away from Christ before the foundation of the world. And the other things, and the act of that is just being played out in time. And to a certain extent, an aspect of that is true, but not in how they mean it. We'll talk about that in Romans 9. But where he says here, and you're going to see this without throughout Romans 1, this latter half of Romans 1, God is not doing these things for no reason. There is no way that you can read the latter part of Romans 1 and perceive it as though these people who are condemned by God, that God is doing it, one, arbitrarily, that's false, or two, that he is not doing it in response to them. Okay, and this is important. And they are, you're going to see reading through this passage, and I've talked about this in the past, but as we're going through Romans, I'm going to say it again in case somebody hasn't listened to me talk about it in the past. I think it was in the, we talked about truth and deception. God responds to man. He does. Now, you need to parse that out a little bit more. Man is not the first mover. Nobody ever thought of God without God thinking of him first. The difference is, though, God draws all men. There is no way around that scripturally. Now, for a Calvinist, what they say is God draws all people, but he elects a certain few to enable them to respond positively, and he does not elect the other ones so that they do not respond positively, okay? And yeah, God elects certain people, but that's, you know, listen to our talk on election, and you'll see exactly what it is. Again, a lot of this will be parsed out more, especially as we get into Romans 9. But the point that I'm trying to make here is Calvinism says that God draws some people, does not draw others, and therefore he is somehow justified whenever those people he did not draw act a certain way, and he punishes them. I'm sorry, that's completely false. In John 12, 32, Christ says, all men are drawn to him. And here, Paul says that all men are without excuse, right? But here throughout Romans 1, you see God is responding to how they respond to him, which means he is doing something first to all men. Some men are responding negatively on their own merit, and God is responding to them responding negatively. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, according to Calvinism, again, consistent Calvinism, God is the one who ordains 
whether or not you respond positively or not. So to a consistent Calvinist, and again, there's a lot of new Calvinists, the kind of the the neo-Calvinists that are going on now, they don't understand Calvinism at all. They don't. They want the conclusions drawn from it, but they don't understand the reasonings and the philosophical and theological reasonings that Calvin and Beza and these guys absolutely knew. And the consistent Calvinists today know these reasons, and they, they'll just plainly tell you. So when Calvinists will say, well, no, God is not, you know, arbitrary. God is, yeah, men are accountable for their own things. They have free will. They can, they're, they're acting and doing these evil things according to their own will. They're choosing to do these things. But here's the thing. According to a Calvinist definition, free will is not free. It's a non-free free will. It's certainly not libertarian free will. Jonathan Edwards, I believe, was the first one who redefined free will in order to defend Calvinism. Um, If I'm not mistaken, he was the first one. And he redefined free will from the sense of you are free to do differently than what you do. And like if you choose to go, you're walking down a fork and there's a fork on the road, you choose to turn left, but you have the ability to choose to go the other direction, and for all intents and purposes, you could have done that. That was a legitimate possibility that could happen, but you did not do that. That's true free will. There is ability to do differently than what you do. Now, what Calvinism has done is redefined free will to be a form of what they call compatibilism, which is nothing more than soft determinism, where they say, God has determined your nature, and you have certain desires based on your nature, and free will is you choosing to do things according to what you want to do. In essence, what that means is their idea of free will is you are free to choose to do what you want. You are acting in accordance with your desires. But one thing that they fight tooth and nail against is to acknowledge that their view of God is that God is the one who made you desire those things. And so then they have to try and say, well, there's proximate cause and remote cause. God's certainly not the cause of sin. He just caused you to be the cause of sin. And if I sound upset about this, I am, because this is why one of the chief arguments against Calvinism is it makes God the author of sin. And that is, that's blasphemous is what that is. And I get very upset about this because when you talk to atheists, when you talk to people, and I'm not talking about recently, you can go back centuries, and atheists have jumped at this because it has given them reason to hate God. And it's certainly not the God of the Bible who is omnibenevolent and good to all and does not show partiality. He's no respecter of persons. Every single person in the world has a chance to be saved. It's just, like Paul says here, you do not want to acknowledge God. You do not want to yield to God. You want to be God. You want to be the self in charge, and you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But that's not Calvinism. Calvinism provides sinful man with a legitimate excuse because they say, well, no, God ordained me to where I can't yield to him. My wife, one time years ago, whenever she was in college, she would weekly go to a nursing home in a certain area near uh, about an hour, I think, so away from where she went to college. I don't know how close it was, but it was a little bit of a drive, I think. And she went there and she would visit people and talk to them. And there was this one woman 
who would, I think she sat like in a rocking chair or in a chair or something like that. And she kind of just always was staring off into space and everything like that or something. I might be confusing two people, but there was one woman who my wife talked to one time and she just could not understand why this woman would not give her life to Christ. She seemed to believe, she seemed this and that and all sorts of stuff, right? And the woman told her, she's like, well, honey, you don't understand. I'm I'm one of those, the old school kind of thinking. And my wife didn't kind of know enough theologically at the time to know what she meant by that. The woman was Calvinist. She had been taught Calvinism, Calvinism to say, well, I'm either elect or I'm not. And now, yeah, there are some Calvinists who do not practically work that out. But here's the thing. That's the consistent logical conclusion that you will take away from Calvinism if you actually think about it and stop just taking the excuses that they call reasons. And I'm sorry. That's what it is. They're excuses. And they're reasons. I was explaining to somebody, you can always identify a false theological system. Always. A false interpretation. A false idea, really, because the way in which it is defended is not by Scripture. It is defended by rescuing devices. Um, um, logically, it's like, well, it could be this. It could be that, right? And people say, well, Calvinism is a logical system. It logically flows from the Spirit. It's like, yeah, it's a logical system that has been defended for about 400 years of people giving reasons. Just because people give you reasons does not mean they are right. It's like in logic, whenever you're forming an argument, there is soundness and there is validity. You might have a valid argument, it might not be sound. And that's what a lot of things are. You have reasons that are lined up in such a way as to logically flow from one another, but are nevertheless not true. And this is what Calvinism is. It begins with arbitrary definitions of words, redefining of concepts from the Scripture to skew them off of what the Scripture actually says, and then everything after that is a logical deduction from those false premises. And I'm sorry if I'm harsh about this. It's I'm sorry. It is a plague on Christianity. It is not scriptural. And I hate it because it, it really does... It blasphemes the God of the Bible. It really does. It is such a, a blot on his character to misrepresent him this way. I literally was talking to a Calvinist, and I, and I said, so you don't believe that Jesus died for all mankind? He said, of course not. And it's like, well, what do you do with 1 John 2, 2? And he didn't know, but it's like, well, he knew God, Jesus didn't pay for everything, though he can't actually explain it. You know, and whenever you pick up the writings from these scholars, quote unquote, about First John two two or First Timothy chapter two verse three through six or Romans chapter five, they don't have good reasons. Most of them don't even know the re- why they these other people have explained this or that. Most of them were confused when they read Romans chapter nine verse six through twenty nine. They turned to a Calvinist or somebody else to try and explain it, and then they have they just run with it. Time and time again, that's what you see. And so I'm going to step back from ranting, and I'm let's just go through this passage, and you will see there is no room for a Calvinistic view of this. Because at the back of all their reasonings, where they would, some of them would interpret this the very same way, but at the back of a Calvinist's mind, they will say God is the one who made these men this way, and then responded as though they were the author of these things. And I'm sorry, you know what that is? That's called lying. 
And God does not lie. God is no respecter of persons. He's without partiality. They were, men are without excuse. And so pay attention when we go through this passage, and you will see over and over again it says, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, God is responding to man's unrighteousness because he did give them truth. They had the ability to respond positively to it, and they refused. Okay? Okay, I'll step back off of Calvinism for now. I make no promises about how long it's going to last. So back in Romans chapter 1. And we were in Romans one twenty one. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile or vain in their speculations, their imaginations, how they reasoned, the dialogosmos, the Greek word. Um, it's a perverse, selfish reasoning. And their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, first, first part in this passage. When was their heart darkened? It was after... They knew God in the sense of the general acknowledging of God with the mind, that general revelation. There was creator. They knew it. And they refused to hold him as that creator and them as created and therefore servant to that creator, right? And they respond to God by rejecting him and becoming vain and futile in their speculations. The way in which they think, therefore, gets becomes ridiculous because they refuse God's truth. And then their foolish heart was darkened as a result of their refusing to acknowledge God, okay? Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, right? And this, and notice what he says in verse 23, because it's the same sentence. He says, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I want you to think about that. They profess themselves to be wise, to reject this concept of God above all things and in control of all things, this all-powerful deity who is good to all and who has revealed himself generally in the just the wisdom of how the universe was made. And they reject that concept, but the concept that they wholeheartedly embrace is something like, we're going to bow down to birds and calves and all sorts of things. I mean, think about Egypt. You know, there's men's bodies with bird heads, men's bodies with dog heads. You know, there's, you know, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and bowing down to a statue that they made, made of a calf and saying, this, or these are thy gods. It is the height of foolishness. I mean, you read through Romans, I'm not sorry, not Romans, Isaiah chapter 40 through 45, and you see all these arguments that God gives trying to show them how absolutely foolish it is to have any kind of idolatry, for one thing. But you see, all of it is a response of them refusing the truth. When you refuse the truth, all that happens is you were just given over to foolishness, that which is not true, right? It's the logical result. You reject truth, all that's left is untruth. You reject wisdom, all that's left is foolishness. But the world and mankind in general has just rebranded it. It's like the height of propaganda. Well, no, this is wisdom. You know, we we evolved for over millions and billions of years. We don't know how. Never observed, tested, or repeated it um, from particles to people. Well, where did the particles come from? We don't know. Where did the where did how does this happen? We don't know. You know, where's uh well, what started all this? We don't know. 
and this is touted as science? All of these things are the result of just a simple refusing to acknowledge God. And so notice what it says in verse 24. Therefore, now anytime you see the word therefore, it's for this reason. It's like a summary statement. It's like given what was just said, this. So anytime you see the word therefore or for this reason or wherefore, go back and get the context, okay? So it's like as a response to men rejecting God, refusing to acknowledge him as God, and they, you know, they became vain in their imagination, the foolish heart was darkened, and all these things. As a response of that, right, it says, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So notice, whenever they refused the truth, they became vain in their imaginations, their speculations, and everything just became futile right? And they became fools while thinking they were wise. They took this glorious picture of God and this glorious image of God, and they gave up and they started worshiping created things as though that was God. So what happens then? It's like their morality, therefore, loses all sense of righteousness and rightness, and it just becomes immorality and unrighteousness, right? It's a complete flipping. It's like, and so, but notice what happens first. You've refused to acknowledge God in the right way, and then your morality, therefore, is not right. But notice it says God gave them over. He responded to them. It's like, oh, you don't want me? Fine. I'll give you what you want. Okay? And this is the concept, and this is the term I want you to actually remember, of judicial hardening. This is a concept that you know, Calvinists don't understand. God responds to your response to him in refusing him, in resisting him, and refusing to acknowledge the truth, you suppress the truth, God ref- God will turn you over to a reprobate mind. This is the, the passage in Scripture, um, in a couple verses, that actually uses that word, okay? And so this is God's judicial judgment, and it is a judgment. You refuse the truth, God's going to let you have lies, okay? And it is a judgment. This is judicial hardening. It's not like Calvinism, which has all men being born reprobate or being born hardened, right? He is responding to their rejection of truth, okay? And so notice that it turns into impurity, immorality, and it, chiefly in the sense of what he says first, lustful immorality, okay? Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, or, that, or the lie in the, in the Greek, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And really, you can sum up all, all false religion that way. It's just an exaltation of something God created over the actual creator, or instead of the actual creator, whether it's self, some other thing, or some man who is not actually God. It's always going to be flipped, okay? Verse 26, notice what it says again, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, right? For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Again, you see this switch from 
um, from right passions to degrading passage, from natural function to unnatural function, right? And verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving their own per- in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, this is something that I've actually grown to understand better. What's the error? The error, right, is the one that's re- referenced beforehand, right? The error is they're refusing to acknowledge God, right? And receiving in their own persons is this turning over of themselves to these unnatural things, okay? It's like when you refuse God, it's like the levee breaks. When you refuse the thing that God has placed in man to restrain him, right? Whether conscience or fear of God in general, there's nothing that is off that's you know that's off you know you know that's unavailable to you you know it's like a, you read friedrich nietzsche the philosopher centuries ago and it's like he seemed to understand this at least to a certain degree because in his in his writing on the superman right the man you know man wholly devoid of any real fear of god you know which hitler really ran with and i mean literally literally quotes and references that idea of the superman right um they have a quote at auschwitz um, in Europe about that quote from Hitler whenever you go to visit there. And it's like, whenever you get rid of that fear of God, no, sin will just run rampant, right? And so you see this is the response to their not acknowledging God. They're receiving these unnatural lusts, this burning desire, this overpowering lust that is going to happen, and it's not the same as the burning that's talked about in First Corinthians seven. That you, you know, you know, for it's better you to marry instead of to burn. No, that was actually a natural desire. You know, as God designed sexual intercourse within a specific context to be met within the righteous marriage. You know, righteous and the righteous ways that God has ordained these things to happen. So everything within its proper context is a gift from God. It is whenever it is taken out of that context, perverted, God is not acknowledged that it becomes perverse. It becomes unnatural, and sin will run rampant with it. And those who have ever been or talked to somebody who has really struggled with certain things, whether it be from pornography to you know living a life of sexual immorality, right? There is such a strong pull. And they think it's about lust. No, it's even more more than that. In a broader sense, you're not attracted to lust. What you're attracted to is sin. Because I'm telling you what, if you think that it's just lust, then you think that you're going to get married, and somehow, because this is now legal in the sight of God, that your desires are going to go away? No, 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 no. You don't get it. Your flesh is lusting against that which is unlawful, unnatural. So all that's going to happen is the sin in you, the sinful nature in you, will begin to long for something else that is not lawful. Okay? And I can talk, tell you about people that I've talked to. I can tell you from the type of temptations that you know I'm aware of. But people, sin will always draw you away. Lust will always draw you away from what is lawful. Just because you get married doesn't mean it goes away. You have to learn to 
acknowledge God in all your ways, and God will make those things go away. Why? Because you are keeping God the way that he needs to be. God can deliver you from any sin, okay? And I just have to say that in the passages, so unless it seems so very bleak, no. God can deliver you from all sin. He can, okay? We're talking about what happens when people do not acknowledge God, which is literally what we're about to read, okay? Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Notice what it says again, God gave them over. That's the third time in this passage. He gives them over. He responds to their lack of desire to follow him. He gives them over to what? A depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then he gives a list of some things, okay? Now, this is there's an interesting play on words here in the Greek, okay? There's dokimos and adokimos, right? It's an inversion. That, that a prefix is like the difference between theism and atheism, okay? It's um, gnosis and agnos, agnostic, right? It's an inversion of the other. So there's a play on words here where it's like just as they didn't see fit to approve of God, right? God gave them over to be disapproved. And it's like, oh, you don't want to, you don't see fit to, 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 you don't see fit to serve God? Well, guess what? God's going to give you to an unfit mind, right? Uh, I just read in one uh, commentary, I liked the way in which uh, he worded it. It was a great house. He, he worded it saying, by rejecting God from their minds, their mentality was rejected. You reject God, he will make you rejected, okay? And again, this goes back to the very principle. If you reject the truth, what's left? Untruth, okay? And you see God is responding, okay? It's just responding. God offers truth to all. He says that all men have a general knowledge. You know, think about it, it says, um, Christ is the light which shineth every man that cometh into the world, John chapter 1. Um, all the way back in Psalms 19, where it says, There is no voice nor language where, there, where it's not heard. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And chapter 1 says that men are without excuse, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Truth is available to all. It is knowable by all. The general revelation and a fear of God are available to all. Right? Men are not passive. They are not just being judged by a God who has not done anything for them, okay? This is a wrong understanding of people. People having an idea of, like, well, what about this guy over there in the mountain somewhere? He didn't say, no, 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 you don't get it. They are either responding or not responding to the truth that God has given to them, okay? And if God gives you a measure of light, you respond to that light. God will give you a greater measure of light, which will ultimately lead to the gospel, in the sense of he knows that you will or will not accept it, okay? But all throughout this process, men are either yielding to the truth of God or they are resisting it, okay? And if you won't, res if you won't even acknowledge the basic things about the existence of God, such as creation, what makes you think that you're going to accept things about the gospel, which presupposes God created all things? And so, just throughout this passage, you see all men are condemned, right? And then he's going to zoom in in chapter 2 and start talking about Gentiles in particular, 
and then chapter three and some parts of chapter two about Jews in particular, okay? And so he's going to be more specific. But here he's just giving kind of a broad sweeping statement and explanation that men are under the wrath of God, and this is apart from God's redemption, okay? And again, this is beginning to explain the righteousness of God. Men are condemned in the sight of God, okay? And God, God has good reason to condemn men. They refuse to acknowledge him as God. They refuse to be thankful to him. They refuse to allow him to be actually creator in their lives, in the sense of him being the authority and them being the created thing. They want anything else. They will they'll bow down to images that they make with their own hands and images of birds and four-footed animals and creeping and crawling creatures, right? Anything other than the truth. And this is why the ultimate response of these things is God gives them over. It's like, oh, you don't want the truth? Fine. Have all the lie you want. And so then the restraint comes off. And so then they start to do those things which are not proper. And so the morality fails. Verse 29 through 31 specifically say that men being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, the gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And notice what he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So it's just this we're going to spit in your face, God. I know that you say this is wrong. I'm going to laugh hysterically about it, and I'm going to go do it and encourage other people to do it. I know people like that. I work with people like that. And it really does. The more that you think about it, it is absolutely horrifying to think about it. And it really is to just acknowledge this in context. And this is where one commentator, um, I, th I think the way in which he kind of framed it was really really uh, impactful when you really think about it. What has really happened is they've rejected reality. The reality is God exists, and God is the one in charge of all these things. The spiritual reality of all of these things is more real than just this temporal material thing that you have going on around you, right? And your little life in this world, right? And the reality has been rejected, and you're just living in really just like it says, your imaginations. You think that all these things, you think that it's hilarious to live this way. You think that these things are not going to have a just recompense. And it's really, it's really frightening whenever you see how much man can just get away from God. And it should really prod us to watch our own selves, lest we lose our own vigilance, right? Okay, now again, this is broad sweep. This is like worst case scenario type situation in this passage about man's state. Apart from God, this is worst case scenario. He is just a, an evildoer full of all these things, and there's no restraint, okay? So then as he moves into chapter 2, which we'll stop here for this episode, and we will start talking about chapter 2 where he's going to kind of zoom in on the Gentiles in particular, as opposed to the, to the Jews who have been given the law of Moses and a greater, more particular revelation from God, okay?
Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.